Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 5th, 2015, and before introducing today's guest, I want to encourage listeners to go to econtalk.org, and in the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll find a link to a survey where you can tell me a little bit about yourself and vote for your five favorite episodes of 2014. Now for today's guest, he is Greg Page, the executive chairman and former CEO of Cargill, the world's largest privately held company with revenues in 2013 of about $136 billion. They have about 142,000 employees, and they're involved in all many, many aspects of the food business. Greg, welcome to Econ Talk. Good to be with you, Russ. Let's start with uh, what Cargill does. Uh, I said you're involved in the food industry. I know that doesn't begin to cover it. Uh, talk, and I know you can't uh, do that. If we, if we had the whole hour on this, I'm sure you could you could cover it. But just briefly, uh, what does Cargill do? What are they involved in? So we describe ourselves as being involved in food, ag, and risk management. And in the food and ag space, we would differentiate the uh, upstream activities of dealing directly with farmers and producers, whether that's producer education on how to produce products that are safer, cleaner, more fit for purpose, and then following those through the links uh, to where many of our customers are the consumer packaged goods companies that uh, your listeners would recognize, the, the Nestle's, the Crafts, the Unilever's, the General Mills of the world. We also provide risk management, and we started out in 1865. This year is our 150th anniversary. And so <clears throat> we started out as really as a risk management company. And so we work with both at the producer level and at the consumer level, helping people manage their price risk and their supply chain risk. So you were CEO for a little over six years, which um – I suppose to some people it might seem like a short time to be in one job, but I'm sure it was a very intense uh, experience. Uh, yeah. Was there anything remotely like a typical day? Uh, what, 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 what's it like day to day to be the CEO of an enterprise that uh, that massive? I don't know that there would, would be a typical day. Certainly there are rhythms to any big company in terms of interaction with our shareholders who have been enormously supportive and loyal to the company for 150 years. So both the Cargill and the McMillan families continue to own all of the stock in the company, excluding that which uh, they share with employees. And, and so there is a certain uh, normal day to, to that rhythm or a normal month. We have a board of directors that fortunately is also populated by six external executives. Since we are an employee stock ownership company, they serve as fiduciaries for our employees and have been enormously important to the company. So there's a portion of my time as chairman and CEO that is spent dealing with our board members uh, as, as well as our shareholders. I think the second thing, given that we're in 67 countries and do business probably in 140 different countries, there is a geopolitical element to a typical month or a typical week. I would normally spend more than 100 days outside of the United States in support of our employees and or our customers in, in a variety of places and roles. So I think the only thing that's common about 
um, a week or a given month is the uncertainty that events around the world bring to Cargill. And so I tried, and I believe the advice I've given to my uh, successor is to keep a portion of my calendar open and not to be oversubscribed given that there will be time that will be required for events that can't be predicted or projected. Was there a crisis in those uh, six years that stands out that you had to deal with that you could talk about? Well, certainly the fall of two, late summer in the fall of, uh, of 2008 in the financial crisis and particularly the, the timing of it. It came during the North American harvest season and one of the manifestations of the crisis was a shrinking of the liquidity and clearly agriculture requires a lot of liquidity to buy uh, harvest from farmers as they come due on a biological cycle. And so we went through a period where we worked very closely with the U.S. Treasury and, and others to ensure that the flow of capital to agriculture was sustained. And I think that sticks out in my mind. There were a lot of other offshoots of that event in terms of individual commodity prices plummeting and some individual country specific events such as those in the former Soviet Union. But more broadly, um, the liquidity crisis in 2008 was certainly an interesting time for agriculture overall. Now, I'm sure you, um, well, you've been in the, you've been with Cargill, I think, uh, according to the site that I saw over four decades. Is that right? Yes, this is my 41st year. Wow. So you probably knew something about food uh, going into that job. Uh, was there a lesson that you learned about uh, food and food supply that you hadn't uh, learned beforehand? Uh, I'm sure you learned a lot being CEO, but uh, in terms of just food, anything stand out? I think an underappreciated aspect of food and, and agriculture uh, certainly is <clears throat> the interconnectedness of, of the various links in the supply chain. But powerfully within that is the role of price in in changing behavior in a positive way. I think most of the general media will cover price movements generally on the upside as a harbinger of inflation or as something that's yeah, unfair. Something sinister, yeah. Something sinister, but in point of fact, that you watch as price signals very quickly go through the global agricultural landscape and cause players in each individual link to, to behave differently. And, and I've seen it in a very, very positive way that after, for instance, to use a recent result, the very severe weather of 2012 in the U.S. Midwest, the way in which farmers in the outback of Brazil and in other places in Latin America, in Central Europe, the way they responded to that drop in supply related to U.S. weather to ensure that the amount of calories that we actually produced worldwide, if you look at 2012 and 13 together, were very close to on trend. And I think people miss that and it's underreported that that signal went out and the speed of response all across the food supply chain to price signals is something that I would not have appreciated as I came out of college in spite of taking a few courses in microeconomics. But uh, it, it's something that we try to talk about more openly and more often as price movements are usually cast in a very ugly light. And in point of fact, people miss the huge positive value they have in terms of food security. That's a great example. Of course, we're in the middle of a very uh, traumatic fall in energy prices right now. 
Mm-hmm. And when energy prices rise, um, there's always sinister talk. Somehow when they fall, mm-hmm. there's nothing sinister, except for how slow they fall. They, don't, <laughs> they never fall fast enough, but, but they do fall, no. uh, which is uh, surprising. And as you point out, they do change behavior uh, on both ends, the up and the down. How about on, yes. the, on the personal level, um, any uh, particular lessons you learned from making that, uh, going into that chair of uh, CEO? Uh, a sense of nakedness. I think you're, each, each word and each gesture is overanalyzed by a, a large group of people internally and externally. I think you come from a small town and hopefully are sincerely modest and you find yourself be, in your comments uh, being o- overly impactful to people. And I think you learn very quickly that the risks of thinking out loud are, are greater than the benefits of it. And so my goal had never been to be anything but transparent, but there, there is a certain caution that you grow into rather quickly as, as you find out that people have a hard time distinguishing between what's part of your learning process and, and your verbalizing in, in order to get people's reaction versus actually encouraging people to act on those thoughts. Uh, it's a very tough job. I think uh, I've I've talked at length to a couple CEOs in my life, not not very many, and most of us. It took it was a while before that happened, and I think we don't really have those of us who are out here in the world don't have much of an idea of what that life is like. There must be a certain loneliness also, and I wonder. I'm sure you got a lot of advice before you went into the job, but I wonder how much you ended up uh, communing with other CEOs about the uh, the challenges. Does that happen? Yes. And, and what's interesting is you first think you're the only CEO that's seeking those opportunities where you can be um, unfettered in, in your thinking and comments. But I think most CEOs appreciate a couple weekends a year where they can interact with other people whose <clears throat> day-to-day work experiences are quite parallel to their own, in spite of the fact you're in very different industries and, and very different points in the cycles of those various industries, and in some cases, very different geographies. The degree of commonality is pretty high, and there is a value to that, that that I have seen. And I think the fact that many CEOs are willing to give up a couple weekends a year to, to have those interactions says that it it's beneficial. And I think it's beneficial to the person. I think it's beneficial to the corporation and to the shareholders. So this is a, uh, obviously can't answer this question precisely, but uh, what proportion of your time as CEO would be taken up by what me, what we might call legal and regulatory issues? Mm. 110? Yeah. In, in one way, they formed a backdrop for a host of other decisions that you make, right? Who, who you choose, the, the whole issue of the imaginary horribles, we call them. Uh, how do you prepare yourself for those five or six standard deviation events that can really change the trajectory of a company? And, and so to the degree that you spend time on trying to mitigate risks, to have a balance sheet that's resilient to really, really harsh uh, external financial environments, you could make the case that it, it preoccupies all of or, or pre-populates all of your other decision-making. How much time did you spend brainstorming about those black swans, those five to six standard deviation disasters? Not enough. 
but <laughs> a, a significant uh, um, amount of time, and, and I think it was Eisenhower or whatever, the, the plan means nothing, the planning means a lot. And so I, I think the whole ongoing discussion as you meet with individual division heads and things and asking them kind of the what keeps you awake at night questions um, is, is an ongoing process. Part of it is not for the headquarters to be prepared for that, but to have a sense of how well prepared individual country leaders or individual industry leaders are for that and how much time they're giving it. I think the one thing you learn in Cargill, 67 countries and 65 different businesses in many of them in, in places where our participation really is mandated by nature in terms of crops are only grown in some places and not others. People often ask me, Greg, why does Cargill continue to stay in country X? Because we have to. And so our, ours is to figure out how to do it within the bounds of our ethics and and to have a balance sheet and a set of risk profiles that realize that we are going to be in, in difficult circumstances many times. And so what's really important to us is the people we choose as leaders and, and, their, will, and their willingness to prepare themselves for those black swan events. So that's a nice segue to some of the policy issues we, I'd like to turn to. Talk about food security. What does that uh, phrase mean and uh, what does Cargill do to worry about it? So food security, what does it mean? Great question. Um, to me, it's the ability over time and over broad swaths of geography and over broad swaths of the world's uh, income demographics to provide affordable, safe, nutritious food. So that's at, at the highest level. And I say over time because weather will throw curveballs at us, whether it's the 2012 event here in the U.S. or weather events that we've experienced in the Black Sea region in the last four or five years, et cetera. So second thing is food security. If it's defined one country at a time, none of us will be food secure. So it is an interdependent definition that we try to get people to appreciate that one of the big threats to food security is the attempt by individual countries to define food security only in the context of their own citizens. How that manifests itself in some cases, people start trying to grow crops for which they enjoy no comparative advantage. And so they take valuable acres and valuable rainfall and force farmers through tax policy or other means to plant crops which don't really suit their situation because they're simply not prepared to have trust-based trade with others who do enjoy advantage in, in that crop. And so a good positive example is as China's population and per capita GDP has grown, they've come to realize that raising all of their own soybeans doesn't make sense, that they have far more comparative advantage in growing starches, wheat, rice, and corn. And so they have allowed themselves to become significant trust-based traders with the U.S. to some degree and to Latin America to a great degree on soybeans and have taken their local water and, and land to grow starch where they do enjoy comparative advantage. Everybody wins. If today China had a policy of trying to be self-sufficient in soybeans, every single person on earth would be less food secure. And getting that simple message across is more difficult than you'd think. And to this very day, we continue to see governments suddenly becoming anxious about a given crop where they enjoy no advantages and yet compelling their farmers to grow those crops for this sense of 
single nation defined food security. Really dangerous for all 7 billion people. Might make great local politics in a given country, but if that were practiced on a broad scale by a large number of countries, a lot of our food security would evaporate. I was shocked in, in prepping for this interview to discover, which I did not know beforehand, that Saudi Arabia had been trying to become a wheat exporter, which is a rather extraordinary story. It's great to go and see. Yeah, You can see the remnants of it. and They've stopped, obviously, and have, have significantly wound that activity down. But I was there. <clears throat> the Minister of Commerce shared with me, at one point, 90% of the pumped water that they were bringing up out of the ancient, ancient aquifer was being used for agriculture. And they realized that that water was most likely fossil water and not replenishing, and that it, it made no sense to continue to do that vis-a-vis -vis buying their barley from the Canadians, for instance. So let's talk about the United States. Um, uh, we are a uh, we are thought to be a, a, a free trade co country, and we are more free trade than we were 100 years ago or 50 years ago. But there are, of course, pockets where we intervene for political reasons, presumably. Uh, two that come to mind are sugar, uh, where we don't let in much sugar from the rest of the world or sugar-based stuff mm -hmm. and the other is corn which as far as i can tell uh we subsidize in all kinds of complicated ways through ethanol requirements and other other policies a lot of people have blamed that uh the ethanol requirement and other corn-based policies for pushing up the uh pushing down the price of corn artificially worldwide because we export it making it harder for farmers outside the united states to make a living what are your thoughts on that what do we know about that? Well, I think even the question is is mixing a couple of, of different forces. So compelled import prohibitions, and certainly we have those to some degree in poultry through phytosanitary rules. In the case of sugar, it's been very explicit for, for quite some time. Those clearly are a manifestation of, of politics and they enforce, by definition, a cost on consumers, albeit in the case of the U.S., probably relatively modest as a percent of GDP, but it is a de facto form of indirect taxation on consumers in order to pass revenue certainty to a small group of producers, in this case, cane and sugar beet producers. It's been there for a long time. <clears throat> It'll probably continue for a long time based on the, the political makeup in the U.S. in the total scheme of our, our food system is probably relatively small. The second issue that you brought up about corn, and clearly in the case of ethanol, most of the criticism, particularly from 2007 until probably within the last six or seven months, has been the fact that it has raised the price of grain and therefore <clears throat> been a burden on the world's poorest people. It clearly creates demand for corn. If you look at it from a policy standpoint, what we see going on in just biofuels more broadly, and particularly in the last seven, eight months as commodity prices have collapsed. If you go back 25 or 30 years ago, whenever agricultural prices collapsed, government reaction to that was generally to restrain supply, even going back into the 30s where there were restraints on supply to try to get commodity prices up during the depression. Yep. What's come out in the last 15 years is a realization by governments by putting in 
demand requirements, you can also raise agricultural prices. And so we've gone from an ag policy worldwide where price management was generally carried out through the treasury using its money to restrict supply. We've now entered an era where treasuries have realized we don't need to use any money if we simply put a mandate. It's a very easy tax, if you will, to put on automobile owners by and large to put in place a biofuel mandate. And so recently, for instance, we've seen India put in place a sugar-based biofuels mandate at a price way above market clearing. And so this is no longer a Western Europe or U.S. set of policy prescriptions. We have seen at least a dozen countries that are worried about the collapsing prices of commodities on their rural farmers and trying to prevent a rural to urban migration on an unplanned basis and don't have the treasury to do it through supply restrictions, they are putting in place demand mandates that have in an S&D price discovery dynamic have, have the same effect. And, and so they're benign to the treasury they're a modest tax on each individual person. Most of it falls on vehicle owners who arguably would not be probably in the bottom quartile of income demographics. And so the great new tool of ag policy in the world is demand management <clears throat> through biofuels. Then back to the U.S. subsidy programs. Clearly, they've changed with the new farm bill and the direct payments have gone away. And so the primary vehicle is insurance subsidies. I would make the argument that in terms of global food security, having that safety net for the world's largest and most benevolent exporter is a good trade-off to make for global food security. And the way I would describe that is as a result of that insurance safety net, we have continued, even in today's low commodity prices, to see American farmers be relatively aggressive in terms of the quality and quantity of inputs they use to grow their crops. If they were operating with no safety net whatsoever at today's market dynamic, I think you would almost certainly see a more precipitous decline in the amount of fertilizer that's used in a, the amount of intensification that's in place because they would be managing both the yield versus input trade-off that they always have to make, but also the price trade-off and the working capital trade-off. And with no safety net whatsoever, I think they would take more risks, i.e. reduce the amount of inputs and intensification. If that was combined with bad weather, the world would get to experience what food insecurity feels like when at least part of it's precipitated by a farmer's hedging of their own risks. So I'll stop there to be sure it makes sense because I think it's a really important concept and I don't mean to be an apologist for the farm bill, but at a cost of less than $1 per global citizen, in effect, you take one of the most productive countries in the world and ensure that they continue to practice agronomy on a very aggressive level. And given our willingness to be free traders, um, to me, it raises food security to have that safety net in place. Oh. Is that potentially disruptive? Yes. Are there other tools to offset that? Yes. 
So I want to go back to something you said earlier, just to clarify, and then we'll come back to this issue of uh, safety net. You mentioned the increases in grain prices. So earlier you spoke about the role that price signals play. And I assume what has happened is that as the demand for land to grow corn has increased in the United States, uh, it's gotten more expensive to grow non-corn products, uh, soybeans and and other products that are used for feed and other um, purposes. And that's what you meant by the increase in grain, correct? In grain prices. I'm not sure I understand well, the question. The, the in, in theory, uh, an ethanol requirement, which is going to push up the demand for corn, uh, is going to have a rippling effect through a whole bunch of other markets. And that's what you Absolutely. meant. That's what you meant when yeah. you talked about grain prices going up. Um, yeah. So, uh, so the farmer sits down. The, the best thing about the U.S. Farm Bill versus what existed before the last decade what we what we call freedom to plant that a farmer can sit down in February and look at his land and look at an array of price signals that he's receiving and determine what crops he should grow. If you go back 15 years ago, in many cases you had to farm to the legislation that in order to maintain your base acres and therefore your safety net, you were compelled to grow crops. Today you have in the U.S. an enormous amount of latitude to make the single best decision for you and your family as to what crop you will grow this year, given your soil moisture levels and a host of of other signals. But to sit down at your kitchen table with your advisor or whatever and to make a 10-key calculator determination of what to plant in response to the market signals that you're getting. And so one of the big pluses, but it also... has been in the last 15 years, this freedom to to use your land according to market signals. Are those market signals shaped by things like biofuels policy? Absolutely. And so what affects one crop, the price of, what affects the price of one crop will clearly affect the level of production for all other crops as well. Yeah, I, you know, I don't, um, I mean, that's a fascinating change, which um, most Americans don't pay any attention to. Um, We read for decades that we paid people not to grow stuff. Uh, Economists and others thought that was nuts. Uh, They pushed to – most of us favored no agricultural subsidies. We don't believe that there's a – that there's a literal security issue. There might be arguments about risk and and uncertainty in in how hard it is to be a farmer. But um, we have changed. And do you want to speculate – about what changed politically that made that feasible, or do you want to leave that alone? Because uh, because the reason I say that is that when I talk to people, and, and occasionally I, I talk to people in, who are legislative assistants in Congress about the sugar mm-hmm. thing, which drives me nuts, and um, they always say, yeah, it drives us nuts too, uh, because it's just politically uh, impo- so-called impossible to get rid of a mm-hmm. – incredibly large benefit to a handful of people in mm-hmm. the sugar beet and sugar cane world when the costs of that are spread across 330 million Americans. Uh, so mm-hmm. the, that's a classic uh, Mansur Olson uh, analysis of why some laws uh, persist. And yet uh, the subsidy program for agriculture has apparently changed. And I wonder what 
made that possible? I, I think on the positive side, what made it possible <clears throat> is the increased um, financial performance of basic agriculture in, in the U.S. over the last decade, that if you take the period prior to, say, 2005, I think you could build a case that agriculture broadly defined was decapitalizing itself, that in the absence of direct farmer payments, that farmers in the U.S. Midwest, <clears throat> the average age of their machinery was increasing. You can go through a host of of issues. The price of land had declined precipitously from what it was in 1981-82. The amount of money being spent by the railroads on trackage in the grain in, in the grain infrastructure area was at reduced levels because the profitability of those activities wasn't there. And so you can go through a host of things that the construction of port facilities had basically there nothing had taken place since the late 1970s. And so what happened is agriculture went from being in a situation that absent direct capital injections from taxpayers, it, it felt like it was a, a cash flow negative business and it behaved that way broadly. With the advent of China becoming wealthier, more middle-class citizens defined as people making more than $10 a day started to grow combined with uh, the biofuels mandates in, in a few geographies at that point in time. Suddenly you saw crop prices transition into a net cash flow positive activity. And with that optimism came a, a sense of confidence also, what came with it was the realization that trying to overly manipulate acreage allocation was just m more than you should ask from a government. And there had always been voices to let market signals determine how farmers planted their crops. Don't make people grow cotton just to maintain their base acres in the cotton program when the world is crying out for more soybeans to feed itself. And so I think there was a food security. There was a recognition that it was immoral at some point to force farmers to grow crops that the market wasn't calling for. And so I think a coalition of a host of, of voices combined with a sense of more self-confidence in agriculture to, to take on a less interventionist government farm bill combined to get those those things done. So I, I think there are really positive roots for it. The The seed of that and the voices for that had always been there. They just hadn't been a majority. And I, I think the rising prosperity of the world really gave Congress the confidence to do that. The food production business has become dramatically uh, more concentrated than it was 25, 50 years ago also, correct? Which has reduced some of that uh, variance in incomes that probably was there before. Is that accurate? No. It depends on what you define as the food business. Clearly have <clears throat> the I said food production. Has the market share of the 10 largest grocers increased? Yes. Has the market share of the 10 largest consumer packaged goods grown through consolidation? Yes. Have the number of railroads serving agriculture in the U.S. contracted? Absolutely. So at the level of, of food production, if in the U.S., clearly the average farm size has has grown dramatically in that period, partly accommodated by changes in technology, partly required by the 
the changes in the sophistication of, of the equipment and the capital that's required to, to really be the best cost producer. So there's a lot of voices. At the same time, the proportion of agriculture that continues to be held by extremely small holders, in some cases subsistence farmers who are really trying to feed their family and, and really aren't responsive to price signals, has, has that continued to be a big part <clears throat> of the total global calorie production system, absolutely. And so I think what we have today is is a more bifurcated agriculture with a number of places with larger, very sophisticated farmers, and yet a portion of the world which for geo, I wouldn't even, not geopolitical, but rural sociology issues have continued to fight against that and have sustained subscale smallholders to produce Food is a way again to avoid urban, rural urban migration that they don't want to see. So I, I think it's it's hard to generalize and, and to say that it's been a pervasive consolidation in, in agriculture because it hasn't happened. There are five or six geographies where it has happened, and there are dozens and dozens of countries where it, it really hasn't changed that much. Yeah, I mainly meant I mainly meant the United States. I, what I yeah, find interesting. What I find interesting in in the case of Cargill is that, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm sure I'm not a, a food expert and I'm not a I'm not in the trenches. You're in the trenches. I'm sure there are a lot of people who find the size of Cargill to be something sinister. What what struck me yeah. as as uh, encouraging on the other side is that your margins remain uh, low, steady and low, is what it sounds like from my <laughs> reading, uh, which suggests mm-hmm. it's a fairly competitive environment, even when it's mm-hmm. more concentrated or Whatever you know, whatever that means. Yeah, I think a couple of things have happened. One, it's less concentrated than people think. They often talk about the ABCD, you know, ADM, Bungie, Cargill, and, and Dreyfus. Yet, if if you look at our share of global waterborne trade, it really hasn't changed all all that much over the last decade. There are a lot of emerging new participants out of Brazil, out of out of China, certainly there's a number of trading firms that have emerged in places like like Singapore that participate in given regional trade flows. The second is the quality and the availability of information has gone up dramatically. And so one of the things that always compresses margins is transparency, and certainly that's grown. So to the extent there's been a modest amount of consolidation, it's been equally or more than offset by the increase in information availability. And I think that transparency will continue to have a controlling effect on the ability to raise margins. There's just too much timely, high quality information, not too much. There's just more and more high quality, timely information that will will have the effect to offset any impacts of consolidation. You mentioned uh, global, I think the phrase you used was global waterborne trade. Uh, you, mm-hmm. You're deeply involved in a lot of stuff mm-hmm. being shipped across the world's oceans you have you have a large right. fleet is that correct on time charter yes we do, we don't own a lot of vessels but we have under time charter contracts a lot of dry cargo yes and what's moving in those those are i assume uh, raw raw agricultural products that these yes. are great this is grain and um is it is it is it meat also i i've read about how I read about how global the chicken market is, and I've been interested in chickens and eggs for a long time, which is neither here nor there. Yeah. But um, chicken moves around the world. How does it get there? 
Yeah. Most of it today moves in containers. And so very different than, than the dry bulk. Um, but first for your listeners to put, put it in, in context is I would guess, I don't know the exact number for chicken, but I know within the animal protein space in general, about 15% of <clears throat> global poultry production travels across borders. If you would view the EU as a single food entity, which is really how it operates in, in, in many cases. And so it's still a very localized business. In poultry, the flows, a vast majority of those flows are uh, from countries like Brazil, which enjoy enormous comparative advantage to countries like the Middle East, where they're just not blessed with the crops or the climate for, for animal agriculture to the same degree. And so there are some enormous trade flows in poultry that have very good foundation in terms of comparative advantage. And I suspect those will continue to grow. But overall, if you look at calories and grams of protein, the world's food system remains pretty localized. We may be in some in some years up to 17 or 18 percent that w- that will trade waterborne in grains and oil seeds, but generally probably closer to 15 than to than to 18 percent. And so, to the people that are buying that 15 to 18 percent, it's obviously enormously important. And particularly in the case of countries like Saudi Arabia that have elected to rely on trust-based free trade for their for their food security and to a greater degree. And so we need to keep in mind the portion of the world's food that does trade across international borders is critical to price discovery and it's critical to the food security of people who are trying to benefit from other countries' comparative advantage and their water resources. At the same time, we need to realize that food production remains a highly localized activity. Back to the issue of consolidation, even within the U.S., we have seen an enormous growth in organic farms, for instance, and artisanal agricultural production. And so even in Minnesota, for the first time in the last um, census, we did not suffer a decline in the total number of farms, even though the average size of the big row crop farms did grow, the number of specialty farmers surrounding the Twin Cities, for instance, farming five to 15 acres has grown dramatically as consumers look forward to seasonal produce raised in in a local radius. And so we're seeing a somewhat bipolar agriculture emerge in the U.S. too, with row crop farms getting larger and, and more specialty farmers proliferating. Hugely positive thing, in my opinion, particularly for employment and population in some of these rural counties that have been suffering shrinkage to see people coming in doing high value added agriculture in their communities is an enormous positive. So I have no problem with uh, people who want to buy uh, food from someone whose face they see if they choose to do that or or food that tastes better or uh, we've talked We've interviewed uh, an organic farmer on the program, and I've talked about my mm-hmm. wife's participation in a, in a local food co-op, okay. which is okay. extremely expensive and very pleasant and mm-hmm. tasty. I'm all I'm all for it, uh, but a lot of people are suggesting that that's a um, a model that we ought to spread widely, and not just because the food tastes better or it's pleasant to interact with someone who who provides your food. Because it's better for the environment, or it's better for the for the community in some ways, uh, and that's 
what's sometimes called the locavore movement. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that, uh, particularly on the environmental side? I, I think it depends on how you measure it. That <clears throat> I think when someone has a Ford F-150 pickup pull up in front of their house in suburban Minneapolis, as I see people along my street do, and, and the farmer from 20 miles away drops off five pounds of tomatoes, I, I think if we map the carbon footprint of, of that kind of agriculture, it, it would not give a story that it's sustainable measured across the host of dimensions. I think in some cases there are row crops that are being farmed organically and therefore requiring enormous uh, amounts of tillage to control weeds. And having owned a farm that was farmed um, organically for a number of years, that kind of continuous tillage, in, in my opinion, has some detrimental aspects to, to soil quality and <clears throat> erosion resistance. And so it depends on how you measure it. I think it's great for employment. I think it's great for stabilizing rural communities. I think it's people do enjoy touching the hand of the farmer that, that grew their food. But I think to make a broad generalization that anything that's produced locally is by definition more environmentally sustainable, I don't think would stand the test of mathematics. How about on the cost side? Um Again, I think there's a lot of romance about about local farming, uh, and of course, it reminds them a little bit about of the of electric cars that you know are relatively um, carbon friendly in, until you have to expand coal production. So, a small amount of local farming is one thing. Is being being self sufficient from your local farm region would have a, a bunch of those price signals uh, would unleash a lot of changes that people probably don't anticipate when they advocate for that. Um, what do you think more generally the benefits of the of our global trading system are where we don't worry much about much some people do but mostly we worry about where can i buy the highest quality as cheaply as possible i i think you should ask again russ I, i'm not sure that i well, I think a lot of people. Of sorry, a lot of people are are pushed for. Uh, they're against what what you do. They think we shouldn't. You shouldn't be involved in a sixty seven countries. Each country, each each region, each town, each state, each city. You know, there's different flavors of this. But people want to advocate uh, for a much more uh, self sufficient form of of agriculture. And besides the fact that I think the benefits of that are overstated, I think people grossly underestimate the costs. That is, they underestimate the benefits provided by a global trading system. So I'm curious yes, if, you've, if you've thought much about how large those gains might, might be. I know it's hard to measure them. Obviously, you can't measure them with any precision. But uh, if we tried to be more self-sufficient, I think we'd be shocked at how expensive it would be and, and in turn how yep. beneficial the current system is to the extent it's, it's free. Yeah, right. I think we have evidence – we started out with farmers markets in New York City. They, when they first started, I think they had a 150 mile radius to qualify under the definition of local food. I saw it recently in the New York Times. They now define local food as 400 mile radius, which means you can raise almost to the Western Pennsylvania border. And all it is is a realization that an overly restrictive definition of local is both impractical and impossible as well as being significantly more expensive. If I look at it at a larger scale, I lived 
<clears throat> for a period of time in Thailand and watched while they tried to be self-sufficient in soybeans. They had to pay their farmers more than 50% above the world price to get them to grow a crop in which they enjoyed no advantage. So there are examples where you can do it and the price can be big enough. We grow uh, non-GMO crops here in the United States for a number of our customers. That's what they want and we're here to provide choice. I know what we have to pay in terms of premiums to farmers to make them give up that technology to pay for the additional fuel for more cultivation, to accept lower yields, in particularly in years of more stressful weather. And so we get a window through our business on places where you can actually grow a crop that you shouldn't and what it costs. Call it 40 or 50% at the farm gate. Then there are other crops like the growing demand for cocoa where there just is no choice that it will be grown in, in climates where it can happen, I guess, short of growing greenhouse oranges here in Minnesota, really outlandish things like that. There are portions of our diet, unless we're willing to compress the variety that we enjoy, where it's just not going to respond to any price or any compelled production beyond the, the really absurdity of, of trying to grow cocoa beans or orange juice in greenhouses. And so the costs are not insignificant percentage-wise. I'm glad. And so I'll stop there. Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, GMOs because that was going to be my next question. I'm I'm interviewing uh, Nassim Taleb. We talked about black swans earlier. He's he's mm -hmm. uh, responsible for the that phrase being somewhat common in in conversation now. He is very concerned about uh, genetically modified organisms, GMOs, and the role they play in the food supply. He argues that the uncertainty about it means we uh, sh shouldn't be involved. What's your um, what's your take on that? One, <clears throat> we could feed the world without GMOs. That. Um, there are other practices that, that we could follow. And so the idea that we are prisoners of this technology, I think, is something that should be dispelled. On the other hand, I don't think we should try that. I think if our water is precious, if our topsoil is precious, if we really care about the hydrocarbon footprint that we have in terms of the amount of cultivation that we need to carry out, that, that we should think very carefully about <clears throat> eliminating or demonizing uh, genetic engineering. And so two things. I don't think we should try, try to create a future where these products have been stigmatized. On the other side, it does us no good to make consumers feel that we can't feed 9 billion people unless we use this technology. I, I don't believe it's the case, but it would take more land. It would take more water. It would take more diesel fuel to do it, but we would still provide the calories that 9 billion people are likely uh, to require. As to the issue about human health, I look to third-party institutions, whether it's the Harvard Medical School, the National Academy of Science, the Center of Disease Control, the FDA, even the European Food Safety Agency, don't make the case that this technology is leading to the creation of crops that <clears throat> harms individuals. That being said, I think we as an industry, and it's something that we hope will be taken up in the U.S. Congress in, in the coming year, are prepared to place more strictures on these technologies 
a more transparent review process, greater involvement earlier on of the regulatory bodies, be they FDA, EPA, USDA. And, and so we need to more thoughtfully and consistently enlist consumers' confidence in these technologies if we're going to have a global food system that uses the least amount of land, least amount of water, and least amount of hydrocarbons. And we can do a better job of that as an industry, and we all need to be prepared to do that because the demonization of this technology and even more broadly just of science in our food system in our opinion, isn't isn't going to lead to isn't going to lead to a great outcome. But we have to be careful as a food industry that we don't try to frighten people into these technologies by saying if we don't do this, we can't feed ourselves. That that message isn't necessary. But a message of enlisting and engaging consumers, citizens, young mothers, in an understanding of the role of science, both environmentally and nutritionally in our food system is something that we all have to do a better job of. So we've been selectively breeding stuff for, yeah. for forever. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've seen pictures. I, I think they're probably right of what a tomato looked like centuries ago. It was a berry. Um, corn was like a, a seed. Yeah. Um, and, and we've through judicious and, and improving knowledge of, of the, um, genetic process, gotten better at growing stuff. Um, you know, obviously, you know, my favorite examples is my parents tell me that, you know, white meat and a chicken of, uh, of their era, which would be 19, the 1940s and 50s, was very different than today because people prefer white meat, so the chicken breasts are larger. Um, they've, they've bred chickens to, to do that. Is there some line we shouldn't be crossing that, that might be a different nate quali- quality of genetic engineering that, that we ought to be more careful about? Um, is there something that's qualitatively different about some of the stuff we're doing now that, that might we might need to be more careful about? I think going forward, you have to say the answer to your question is yes, that we should operate on the premise that there there are things that science may discover that we should not deploy. I don't know what they are specifically. I don't think that we are today selling any of those products in, in commerce, but as people um, push the, the boundaries of, of science, will there be moments in which a sound regulatory system and a system of review is, is going to be important and might someone stumble across a technology while it creates enormous changes in productivity? It comes with some unintended risks and, and therefore should not be pursued. I think that's gone on for a long time, whether it's in pharmaceuticals, there, there are a host of areas where something is a wonderful idea except for its uh, side effects. And so might that be the case going forward in, in the area of plant science? I, I would think that we should prepare for that and, and put policies in place um, to address those as they arise. So I mentioned chickens and eggs earlier, and I've, I've written about the fact that on a certain level, it's um, the technology of, say, egg production is inside the chicken. Uh, and you'd think mm-hmm. there'd be limits to how much more productive you could make a chicken. But, of course, mm-hmm. we play with every single margin of improvement in terms of both how many people are involved in the egg production process, how many, uh, how much uh, – Nutrition is involved, the role of medicine and making the chickens healthier. So in the last 50 years, we've totally transformed 
the productivity of egg production uh, from a subsistence level or slightly above subsistence level chicken wandering around in somebody's backyard where you went and picked up the eggs to a world where mm-hmm. it's an incredibly computerized, mechanized process. That's something I know a little bit about, but you know a lot more than I do. I'd be curious – in your impression, what pieces of the food business have changed the most dramatically in the last 40, 50 years, and where have the biggest productivity increases come from? How were they achieved? Well, I think you've, you've given a great example amongst the monogastrics that, that chicken has been enormous. I think the one thing you left out and it's underappreciated is if you go back to the area you described where the, the chicken was outdoors and things, if you think about it, it was an era where we had incredibly cheap commodities. And in effect, you were using grain to heat the chicken, right, in the winter. Yep, absolutely. And in the same time, when it was that 95-degree wet bulb temperature in July, that the chicken would shut down and <clears throat> pant and, and really not be very productive. And so what people have missed is the degree of these improvements that's come about as a result of dramatic improvements in the quality of the housing. If if you look at the way in which a modern pig or a modern chicken or laying hen is housed, it's changed dramatically in terms of their comfort and the amount of energy they spend either heating themselves or the amount of their energy they spend trying to, to get rid of excessive heat. That's being afforded to them by a much more controlled environment. Just like us. Incredib- <laughs> incredi- just like us. Just the same thing. If you can imagine what worker productivity would be if the average office in Washington, yeah. D.C. was not air conditioned. And so it's a host of incremental things that, that come together. Part of it is genetics, but certainly not all of it. Part of it is nutritional science. Clearly, the quality, the intensity, and the density of the diets that are fed today. Yes, the feed conversion has improved, but the cost of the individual diets has also gone up as the density of them has increased. So, in effect, more horsepower per uh, pound of, of feed that we put in front of these animals. So it's all of those things coming together. One of the interesting things that has happened in the last four or five years, as you saw corn go up to $8, is people realize there's a whole nother level of housing quality that can have a return on investment. If you forecast a future of $4 corn or a future of $8 corn, you will see a dramatic difference in how much people invest in in the housing facilities for these livestock because the return on investment on the housing quality is obviously much better in an $8 corn environment than in a $4 corn environment. And so from an environmental standpoint, broadly defined, you could build a case that people are going to get more out of each kernel of grain if it costs $8, whether it's waste control or whether it's the quality of housing, then out of $4. Now, I don't want to make the case or to be the the profit of the world will be more environmentally sustainable if we have very high-priced grain versus low-priced grain, but there is an element of that that's entirely true, that the incentive to optimize each and every uh, pound of feed provided to an animal is greater the higher the value of the feed. And so price, again, back as a signal to d- to do the right thing will, will increase um, the intensification of housing using livestock as the example. And that could manifest itself over a host of of other things as well. 
So some of these improvements are um, pure what we would call computer technology, for example, the delivery of the you – know, we've, we've created a world, and this is true manufacturing and agriculture, of course, is in some sense a form of manufacturing, a world where very few people are involved, people are expensive. Fortunately, we live in a world where we're, our, our costs are getting higher because we're more productive in general. And so mm-hmm. everybody responds to that by trying to find ways to substitute machines for people and other ways for people. And so right. that's one way it's happened. What about the science side? How much of the changes in the last, in terms of yields and productivity generally, not just animals, but grain production, comes from scientific breakthroughs versus uh, technology or trial and error, all kinds of other ways that we improve things? I don't know that I know the exact percentage. I I think that there's an important interdependence that if you're going to buy seed that costs $125 an acre, the return on your investment to buy a planter that puts one of those seeds every three inches every time and at the exact distance below the surface of the earth goes up than if you were using the kinds of open pollinated seeds from 20 or 25 years ago. And so... I think that you could have wonderful seeds and take them to a place where controlling the depth of the planting or the amount of the fertility of the soil, the water retention capacity of the soil, you could have the world's greatest genetics and and not achieve an outcome. So it is the interconnected deployment of all of those things. And it's been remarkable to watch as the price of fertilizer went from sub $200 a ton to where it was in 08 eight or nine hundred dollars a ton the amount of technology computer and otherwise that went into planters and sprayers and spreaders to optimize that eight or nine hundred dollar fertilizer versus 200 and so you can see it in the machinery people buy in the planters they buy in the amount of spending that a farmer will put into his soil testing and so i think to ascribe 30 or 40 percent of our yield improvements came from genetics even if it were true in a laboratory sense, I don't think it's as meaningful as the realization that farmers and their suppliers and their vendors doing all of those things in concert with each other, informed by price, whether it's the price of the inputs or the, the price of the crops that they produce, that's where the real magic occurs. And so that's where we're now, we're circled all the way back to what's the farm bill in which, under which all of that takes place. Well, a lot of what we've been talking about uh, has been the role of price in sending signals and uh, certainly is a – I prefer a world where there's more of that than less of it. Uh, And uh, I prefer prefer a world where there's more free trade than less. A lot of what we've been talking about is um, an application of Hayek's article, The Use of Knowledge in Society. He just called it magic. He called it a marvel. And the reason I called you to interview you is I'd seen a piece uh, by Mark Gunther in The Guardian. He had uh, he had sent it to me. He happened to quote me in it, which is why I think he sent it to me. But it got me interested in talking to you. And in that article, you invoked in, in a particular sentence Adam Smith, uh, Ricardo, and Hayek. And I want to close. Right. I want to close by asking about your interest in economics and where it comes from and uh, how it um, affects your your uh, your work life to the extent that it does? Well, it affects it norm- enormously. I, I see Cargill as, as a great laboratory of both macroeconomics and, and microeconomics that <clears throat> the good news is 
given the planting cycle and the, and the harvesting cycle, each, each year provides the opportunity to see many of the things that economic theorists would tell us actually play out on, at kitchen tables of individual farmers with 10 key calculators responding to signals. I think in a positive sense, watching the NDRC in China make the decision to, to redefine their definition of food security to include importing soybeans rather than compelling land allocation within their own country against their comparative advantage. Again, listening to the voice of Ricardo uh, to say, hold it, this is really not something that we're good at. And, and so we watch it happen positively and negatively. We see people ignore to me, to their great disadvantage, um, the lessons of those three economists in terms of how they price water, in terms of how they charge for infrastructure. And, and so we get to see both the positive power of the messages that those economists talked about, but we also get to see the damaging effect of, of ignoring them. And in very few cases do we see them as being wrong, that these are rules that, at least in food and agriculture, apply rather consistently and and rather quickly. And how did you encounter those ideas? When did you encounter them first? First as a student. And compelled learning. And suddenly there you were three years into your life at Cargill and thought, aha, something that my father paid for during those four years is uh, immediately applicable. My guest today has been Greg Page. Greg, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Good to be with you, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.